We're so glad you're here to listen to this week's sermon from Park Street Church. Park Street is a historic congregation located in the heart of Boston. But more than that, we're a community of people from all different backgrounds who believe and are united by the good news that Jesus is Lord. Visit us at parkstreet.org to learn about our community. A few weeks ago, I was uh, leaving the church a bit late on a Thursday night. It was December 1st, and I was walking out and across Park Street and into the common and was just suddenly in the midst of a giant party. It was the night of the annual Christmas tree lighting of the tree from Nova Scotia that comes down and uh, is put on the common each year. And there was festive dancing and singing on a big stage, and there were all kinds of local businesses passing out free food and drinks. And I called Mandy and I said, you know, next year we should plan to meet down here at this time of day. I didn't know it was really going on. Um, but the, uh, the festivities of this season are glorious and wonderful, and that was just a small glimpse of that. You know, who doesn't love all that we go through in this season of hot chocolate or hot cider and gift exchanges and year-end bonuses and year-end giving and ice skating and family gatherings and all of these things? It's a joyous time. Uh, for each one of us in a different way. And yet, I would say at the same time uh, that there is this reality of joy and festivity, there's also just under the surface the ongoing reality of pain, of sadness, of heartache, and of loss that just kind of drips just underneath that surface for all of us at this time of year as well. Often behind the neatly wrapped gifts under the Christmas tree are family tensions, financial troubles, marital difficulties, challenges with the child. Uh, There are also, of course, during the season, the losses that we feel, maybe more acutely at this time of year. Uh, Perhaps it's the the loss of a closeness in our family because of estranged relationships. And I know that many of us here experience that pain. Or maybe it's the loss of not having a family in the way that you had envisioned that you would one day. And it's that unfulfilled hope that continues to gnaw at you Or perhaps it's the loss of those who are no longer with us. This is our first Christmas without Mandy's mom. And I know that we can just sense the grief that's just just there. And it kind of comes back up in a new way. And I know many of you have had loss in that way in the past year. And you're missing those loved ones this year as well. And these underlying realities that are often really muted. And sometimes they're pushed to the side in a way that leads us either to numbness or to cynicism in a culture that's just constantly awash and, you know, bright music and festivities and so on. But these things, if we listen to them, are often pointing us to a a deeper longing in our hearts that we know that no amount of holiday cheer, whatever it might be, can fill. Even as we experience this kind of holiday cheer, there's that underlying sense that things just aren't really what they're supposed to be. And my invitation to you tonight is to not just push those things off and forget that they're there and drown yourself awash in gifts and presents tonight and tomorrow, but it's to allow God to use those things in your life, whatever your relationship to him is here, whether you are a part of this church and you walk with Jesus or you're really just dragged here by a family member and you don't have any interest in these things, but I would submit to you that those realities in our lives are inviting us to see that we do have a deep longing for something beyond even the festivities of this season. We have a deep longing, even if we can't articulate it, for the God who made us. And it's interesting, this season of 
we call it the holiday season. Um, we as Christians call it Christmas uh, because we know that at the heart of the season in the culture is really the, the amazing reality of this story that we've read this evening about a baby boy that was born to a young woman outside of the town of Bethlehem about 2,000 years ago. You know, it, it's still reflected in our world. If you go across the street to the Boston Common, you'll still see a nativity scene that's put up year after year in the Boston Common that reminds us that this story is at the heart of what we're doing in this season. But the reality is, is this story is what infuses, even if it's been forgotten in some ways, it's what infuses this time of year with these wonderful parties and festivities. There's one reflection on this season that I want to guide our remaining time together here as we reflect on God's Word, and it comes out of the Gospel of John, which we will read later in the service. But it's in John 1.14 when the, the Gospel writer says, And the Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. The beauty and wonder of this story about a baby born to Mary long ago is that the God for whom we long, even if we can't articulate that longing, is longing for us, is initiating to know us, to speak to us, to forgive us, to cleanse us, and to renew us and to remake us into what we were always meant to be. This is a a God who begins, this, this reality begins long ago, and God infuses his love into his created order in a way that is constantly beckoning us, creatures who've been made in his image, to come into and under his love for life. What I want to do tonight is just three simple things. First, to see that what we're celebrating in this event of this birth is actually the culmination of this great account of God's love for his creation. So we'll see that, that, that this event is not the beginning of something. It's actually the beginning of the end of a long-standing history of God and his creation that began with, in the beginning, God made the heavens and the earth. So that's the first thing. Second, I want to see just the nature of how shocking this beginning of the end really is in this event. And then third, to look at how that shocking event reveals something about the nature of the love of God for you and for me and what that love looks like. So first, this is the culmination, the beginning of the end, the climax of a long-standing story between God and his creation. It's a story that has at its heart God's stubborn intention to bless the people that he's made in his image. God promised to Abraham long ago that he would, through Abraham, bring about a worldwide family of blessing, because that was his intention and his heart. And yet after that promise was made, we continue to rebel against him. He still continued to make promises to do this work of blessing his creation. If you don't know God tonight, I want you to know this and to hear this, that God is a God who deeply desires for those that he has made, which includes each one of us, to know blessing and to know life. And his love is what enables that to be a reality for us. And God signals this again and again and again in what we call the Old Testament that starts in the book of Genesis and goes through the book of Malachi, that this love is at work in seeking to bless his people. Now, if you've been worshiping with us this fall, you know that, and I know many of you here probably tonight have not been, um, but I think this will be a way in. You'll know that we've been considering an early part of the story between God and his creation that we call the book of Leviticus 
Leviticus is the third book in the Bible after Genesis and Exodus. And it's honestly a strange and hard to understand book of rituals and laws. But underneath all of Leviticus is the reality that God longs to dwell with his people. God longs to be with his people and to bring them blessing and life. This book, Leviticus, acts as a kind of moment of return to what God created in the Garden of Eden, a moment where God and mankind were dwelling together in unity and harmony, walking together in the garden. That gets lost because of sin and rebellion. And in Leviticus, God gives a new way. He makes a way for his people to safely dwell in his holy presence. And it's a kind of restoration of what God had created in the beginning, in Eden. The tabernacle itself, where God, it's God's dwelling place, his house, his movable tent that would go with the people of Israel. That itself was a microcosm of Eden. It was a mini Eden that pointed back to those early days of peace and harmony before sin entered the world. And so God is constantly about making a way to be among his people because of his love. But because of our sin and rebellion, that way keeps getting pushed against. And finally, in Ezekiel 10, God's presence departs from the temple and moves away because of their sin. And yet, even in that judgment, if you will, on God's people, there is still nonetheless God's promises and intentions to return one day, to deal with his people's sins, to bring about forgiveness, and to establish peace and reconciliation in a world of violence and division. God's promises still remain. And his people's great hope as they awaited what we're celebrating tonight was that one day God would return and his promises to bless and bring life would actually come to fruition. That's what we celebrate this night is that 2,000 years ago when this young woman gave birth to this baby whose name was Jesus and laid him in a manger that this was the fulfillment of everything that God had promised up to this point. And if you look at the story that we read in Luke 2 tonight and go before to Luke 1, you'll see a song that his mother, Jesus' mother, sang when she knew that she was pregnant. And a song that John the Baptist's father, Zechariah, sang. And both of these songs, along with what the angels said to the shepherds, which we did read, all of them say is everything God has promised, everything God has intended for his world, which is blessing and life, that's coming to pass now in the birth of this baby boy. The story is going to reach its climax in this great act of love that God is showing before us in the birth of this son. John calls it the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And by this word choice, what John is saying when that that word dwelt among us, that word is similar to the word that's used to translate tent or tabernacle. And so John is saying that the word, God himself came and tabernacled again among his people. He came near to bless and to bring life. That's what this moment is about. This little baby, of course, would grow up, die on a cross and rise from the dead. And that would be the climax of the work of God to accomplish life and blessing for the world. So if you're unfamiliar with what we celebrate on Christmas, this first point, I just wanted to make sure that you know that we're picking up a story in midstream. And if we only know what's going on here, it's like you're picking up your favorite Netflix Netflix show in season three instead of season one. And you know you're going to miss a lot of the details and the beauty of what's going on in the plot. This is in the middle of the story. God sends forth his son born of a woman. The light shines in the darkness. But it's a shocking light. It's a shocking moment. It's an unexpected reality. Those of us who, again, have studied Leviticus together, we've, 
We've come to appreciate as we've looked at this book over the fall, the grandeur, the power, the majesty, the holiness of God as he is revealed in the scriptures. These are often forgotten realities about the nature of God, the God that we worship. In our day and culture, we are far too prone to make God too casual, too small, too accessible, too, uh, too much of a projection of the quality of niceness in our culture. And as we've studied Leviticus, it's, got, it's, it's helped us to restore a sense of awe and wonder before the God who is indeed a consuming fire, who is to be revered and worshiped and approached without presumption and in humility. Honestly, if we are to deal with the God that made us, who every one of us is longing for, we cannot deal with him casually. We must deal with him as he deserves to be dealt with, as the holy Lord of glory. And yet, this is the wonder of all wonders in this night of Christmas. Consider this, that the God of power and fire and all-consuming holiness, the creator God, has entered into the world as a baby, a vulnerable infant, wholly dependent upon his mother. I want us to be sure that we grasp this, actually. The word who was God, as John's prologue says, is now existing as this baby, this flesh, this body, this little lump of cartilage and blood and bone and hair and hands and feet. This is the eternal God in human flesh. We live in a vast world, a huge galaxy or universe. Several years ago, my kids and I were contemplating how many galaxies that there are in the universe, and I had, couldn't recall the number from my one astronomy class as a freshman in college. So I asked an astrophysicist who was connected to our church at the time, and he, and he told me, Mark, there's a hundred billion galaxies in the universe. hundred billion. And in each galaxy, there's at least a hundred billion stars. And the nearest galaxy to our galaxy is three million light years away. Just the first one of a hundred billion is that far away. And as I reflected on that, we, and I shared it back with my kids, we were just overwhelmed again at the scale of the universe in which we find ourselves. It is overwhelming. One thing I do remember very distinctly from that professor in that freshman year astronomy class was on the last day, he said, if there's one thing that I hope that I've done in this class, it's that I hope I've made you feel small. And indeed, he had. In this vast universe, here's the astonishing reality. The God who spoke this universe into being the God who knows every single one of those hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of billions of stars in the hundred billion or more galaxies. This God entered into life on this pale blue dot, this speck of cosmic dust. And he did so not as a, as a triumphant king, but as a vulnerable baby among a vulnerable and unknown family that couldn't even get a room for a woman great with child. When we read that the Word became flesh, what we need to remember is that the Word became the smallest, weakest, 
most dependent, vulnerable human creature on earth, laid down in a manger in a stable outdoors. And this juxtaposition of weakness and of power is the perpetual shock of the Christmas event that must linger in our collective imagination. G.K. Chesterton, uh, that always wise and witty um, man who lived at the turn of the 20th century, wrote these words, any agnostic or atheist whose childhood has known a real Christmas has ever afterwards, whether he likes it or not, an association in his mind between two ideas that most of mankind must regard as remote from each other. The idea of a baby and the idea of unknown strength that sustains the stars. It's a shocking step in the story that the God of the universe would enter in as a vulnerable baby. So what are we to make third and finally of this weakness, of this vulnerability, of this way of God bringing his dealings with the world to a climax? A lot could be said about this. I want to say just four brief things as we bring this time to a close. Because all of this, this act, this act of God bringing, coming into the world as a little child, as a baby, is an exposition of the character of the God that we know through the biblical witness, who is a God of love. It's an exposition of love in four, four ways that I want you to see that. And it's love, not in the abstract, but it's love in the particular, in the historical, in the material, and in the personal. A love that is for you and for me. It's a love that empties. That should become clear by this last point about the fact that God is the God of the universe and he enters as a lowly baby. The one by whom the universe is held together, the one who is indeed all that God is, that is the Son, the Word. This one took no account of himself, had no self-regard, did not think of equality with God as something to be held onto or grasped, grasped, but having no regard for his own position, in love for us, he emptied himself of his power and position, and he took on the form of a servant. This almighty babe, in pervasive dependence that we behold in the manger, when you contemplate this, when you think about this event, remember that this humiliation, this emptying, this serving, this sacrifice was not for himself, but this emptying of love was for you and for me, that he took this place. Love embraces. In taking upon himself our human nature and all of its weakness and vulnerability, Jesus embraces our situation and our plight. There could be no greater embrace of God than this, becoming man and moving through infancy and childhood and teenage years to adulthood. This babe in the manger is a great embrace of you and of me in a way that could not be exceeded. It's an embrace of our condition and our plight. And the embrace of God in becoming man was in order to redeem, to rescue, to set free. Gregory of Nazianzus in the fourth century said, what has not been assumed is not redeemed. This embrace was to redeem you and me from our plight in sin and diminishment of life because of God's stubborn desire to bless and bring life to his world. Love embraces. Third, love exposes. And here's what I mean by that. What, if, what, what is a baby, if anything, 
but exposed. Exposed to the elements upon a naked entry into the world and gasping for breath. Exposed to hurt and harm and illness. Exposed in that moment of birth to all the threats of our harsh world. And this exposure of Jesus at the beginning, as he enters in as a baby, this beginning in weakness would actually only intensify. He would descend even lower to a different kind of exposure, another kind of nakedness, another kind of gasping for breath, this time on a Roman cross. Love exposes. The one who loves exposes himself or herself to harm because of that love. And Jesus entering in in his incarnation exposes himself to tremendous harm because of his deep love for us. And love finally enables such emptying, such embracing, such exposing was for the sake of enabling. This birth was good news for great joy that will be for all the people. That's what the angel said to the shepherds. Because it would enable, it would enable humanity to actually live, to have life and to have life abundantly. The birth of Jesus as one of us would lead to his death for the sake of us, which would enable life for all of us who are willing to relinquish control of our lives, to acknowledge that we are not Lord, and to acknowledge that he is in fact our creator and redeemer who calls forth from us wholehearted yieldedness to him. And as we yield, we call this in the church repentance and faith, but it's, it simply means letting go of control and trusting in Jesus as Lord, as we yield to him, we are brought into new, genuine, real life, even in the midst of a world that has notes of sadness and sorrow and pain for every single one of us just under the surface of the festivities and the parties. John's gospel calls this new life rebirth, one who is actually born again. And this is the length to which the God of heaven and earth would go in order to see to it that his stubborn purpose to bless and to bring life would come to pass. This length of his condescension from the glorious king and creator to this humble and vulnerable baby in a manger. Every one of us is summoned by this king don't be confused by his humble vulnerability in the manger. But every one of us is summoned by him to come to him and to have genuine life. And if you're here and you're struggling with those minor key realities that are often feel like the major events, and you're trying really hard to put on a smile throughout this holiday season, I want you to know that the God whose love empties embraces, exposes, and enables is a God who knows you, who loves you, and who longs for you to know genuine life in his Son. Let's pray. God, we thank you for this great love that's expressed in this amazing event. It confounds us that the creator of all would become this vulnerable part of creation, that your creation might know genuine life. Pray in the midst of this night, Christmas Eve, and the things we will do after the service and tomorrow, that you would make this reality of your love 
manifest in every one of our hearts and minds. Put a check, Lord, in our, in our hearts to return to again and again that we would know your love and know your life. And we pray these things in Jesus' name, our newborn King. Amen.